Good morning. Today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to miss the point. And I know for some of us, we're like, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. Well, you will. And the, the hard part with this is often when we come to a passage like this, it, it feels a little vanilla. Feels a little, hey, we, we've seen Jesus heal other people before. Like, what's, what's the, the big deal in this passage? And today we're going to see where often when we read texts like this, we can miss the point. A fallacy or a, is a mistaken belief especially one based on an unsound argument. And this is known as missing the point. So let me give you an example. Successful lawyer parked his brand new Porsche Carrera GT in the front of his office. He was ready to show all of his colleagues. And as he goes out to his vehicle to show it off, a truck speeds by, hitting the car and completely tearing off the driver's door. Fortunately, a cop in a police car is close enough to see the accident, pulls up behind the Porsche, and before the cop has a chance to ask any questions, the lawyer starts screaming hysterically about how his Porsche, which he had just picked up the day before, is now completely ruined. The vehicle will never be the same, he says, no matter how hard the repairers work to restore the damage. After the lawyer finishes his rant, the cop shakes his head in disgust and disbelief. I can't believe how materialistic you lawyers are, he said. You are so focused on your possessions that you neglect the most important things in life. How can you say such a thing, asked the lawyer. The cop replies, you don't even realize that your left arm is missing. It got ripped off when the truck hit you. Oh my gosh, screams the lawyer, my Rolex. Okay, that's fine. It's a watch, okay. And today we're going to talk about missing the point, which is all too common when it comes to religion. We will see in this text and we'll experience this in our life more than we realize how often missing the point can happen. So let's go back one verse. If you're in John chapter 5, let's go back one verse to where we were last week. In John chapter 4, verse 54, this is how that chapter and the sermon last week ended. It says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Last week, we concluded chapter four of John, where Jesus performed a miracle of healing an official son. When the father came to Jesus and asked him to go with him to heal him, but Jesus did him one better, and he said, you go, your son is already healed. And he sent him far away. This was the second miracle that the Galileans had experienced when it came to Jesus, when Jesus had calmed a super, uh, in a supernatural way, he had crowd control that was unbelievable, where he was flipping over tables because people had turned the Lord's house, the temple, into a spiritual farmer's market, and Jesus wasn't having any of it. So that's how we begin verse 1. It says, some time later. What's interesting about that is in all the other specifics where he's sharing, he's about to share about a festival, in every other part where he does that, we can kind of tell where in the calendar this was. But he says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. The author of this letter is John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And John often ties Jesus's ministry and the happenings that Jesus had as in his public ministry to different Jewish festivals like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, but this is the one situation where John doesn't designate which festival it was. 
Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. This is probably the gate that is talked about in Nehemiah chapter 3, which was a hole in the north wall of the city, and the, the pool was called Bethsaida, known as the house of outpouring in Aramaic. Verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. It was a custom at this time for people with diseases to gather at this specific pool because there were rushing springs which may have fed the pool and caused a disturbance of water so it was not stagnant. Some ancient witnesses indicated that the waters of this pool were full of minerals and they had, uh, they had medical value, if you will. They were thinking that if you go into this pool, it would heal you. So for many, this was the place that lame and broken and paralyzed people would come to get healed. But for many of them, it was probably just placebo. Many saw it as a possibility. Many saw it as this hope for getting healed. But for many, it was, probably wasn't real. We see this today, church. We see this in cheap fixes. We want a magic bullet, and yet, and I don't want you to miss this, and yet if we'd let it, if we'd let the hurt, if we'd let the loss, if we'd let the pain do its work, it can be like spiritual chemotherapy. We'd see that God redeems loss, and he redeems hurt, and he can use trials to grow us and transform us to look more like Christ. See, trials produce opportunities for growth. Spoiler alert, growing to look more like Jesus is the point. That's why we do what we do, because we want to look more like Christ. Now, we're going to jump into verse 5, but if you notice, there's no verse 4. Anyone? Anyone have a verse 4? And the original transcripts did not include what was later added into by the scribes who were, were transcribing the text. And here's all verse 4 said. It said that an angel was stirring the waters in this pool. That wasn't in the original manuscripts, and so we don't actually take that as from the Lord. And what was added into there was added many, many hundreds of years later. And so we don't have a verse 4. We don't think that there was an angel stirring water. And yet, for some people, when you hear things like this, and we want to be real about this, there have been times where you're looking into Scripture, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Or... You're reading in Mark chapter 16, where at the end of 15, it says that the women came to the tomb, and that was it. Didn't explain the resurrection, didn't do anything like that. So later on, different scribes added in Mark chapter 16, which basically told the story of what the other gospel writers wrote. And so I don't want you to think, well, all of it's just not real. It can't, it doesn't make any sense. If you could take this out, who knows if the resurrection is that, uh, yeah, the resurrection's pretty important. It's throughout all of the text. But this was one of those situations where there was something in the text that wasn't in the original manuscript, so we don't preach it as law. Verse five, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. There's this third, there is this man who had been an invalid for 38 years, who was paralyzed for decades, who had learned to deal with his handicap, and here comes Jesus. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I love when scripture's a little duh. Do you want to get well? Can you imagine being asked this question? 
Of course he wants to get well. Of course he doesn't want to deal with these things. But there's another way to look at this question that Jesus asked. Maybe he was asking, have you lost all hope? Have you lost all hope? Because of the 38 years of handicapped living, he probably had lost a lot of hope that maybe at some point he had had. Verse 7, his response is, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus asks if this man wants to get well, and the invalid probably assumes that only this pool can make him well. Only this tradition can cure him. Only this pool will provide rest and release from his infirmities. He thinks, I need someone to help me into the pool because that's where I will get well, rather than understanding that the healing agent is right in front of him. He, or we, don't need ingredients for a recipe to get well. We need intervention from the Messiah. And now all of a sudden, we're talking about the spiritual and the eternal rather than the physical. See, we don't just need our physical bodies to be healed. We need our lives to be redeemed, and that requires trust in Jesus. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. There was such authority in this. And Jesus used the authority that he has to verify and transcribe this sign. Remember last week we talked about Asa Base, I saw the sign. The sign that he was more than just a prophet, that he was more than just a good teacher, but that Jesus is the author. See, author is the root word of authority, and he is the author of natural and supernatural things. How often have people tried to come to a Christian and say, well, science disproves God. The irony is, no, science just proves God. And for too many of us, we are wrestling with things that we don't understand. And we even have conversations with people far from God. And we're talking about the spiritual and they're talking about the physical. And most of Jesus' miracles are used as confirmation to prove his authority to forgive sins. That's what we see in the other gospels where he would allow someone to walk who couldn't walk. But this one, this story, as we're going to read ahead, it's a little different. And as we read, you may just miss the difference. Verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked, and the day in which this took place was a Sabbath. Jesus' miracles happened instantaneous. There was no need to wonder if Jesus had said something, if it was actually going to take place, if it would or wouldn't happen. And John shares this simple phrase in this gospel that's going to take the story in a completely different direction. Do you see it? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now, I don't have this written down, so if you're, you've got your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to go to Exodus chapter 20 real fast. Exodus chapter 20. Keep your finger in John 5. That'll be on the screen. But Exodus chapter 20 won't be on the screen. And Exodus is where Moses has gone up the mountain. He's talked with God. Moses has been leading the Israelites out of captivity, out of Egypt. And he's been bringing them. And they're just wandering in the wilderness. And it ends up being about 40 years. And he goes up the mountain and he talks to God and God gives him these two tablets which have the Ten Commandments on them. And many of us are familiar with the Charlton Heston movie and that's how we see this. That's okay. But in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 9, as he shared some other commands that he has for his people, he says this. 
In Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You keep it set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Doesn't that make Americans kind of lazy? I'm, I'm, okay. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the Sabbath that we're talking about. And the Sabbath was a command of God, but the religious people of the day made it more about tradition than what the point of it was. Let me show you in Mark. Mark is another gospel that's written by Mark, John Mark, who is following Peter, and he writes down the things that Peter says. And here is a conversation that happens between Jesus and some of the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 2, it'll be up here, it says in verse 23, one Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. This was for food. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered in verse 25, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. I love this because Jesus basically says, hey, teacher of the law, don't you even know the law that you seem to proclaim? Don't you even understand the scriptures that you hold in such high regard? And then Jesus says in verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus has authority even over the Sabbath. But what was meant about the Sabbath was that it was a blessing from God to his people. Not a ritual that was required for salvation. It was and is a blessing from God, but the religious will use it as a requirement for justification. Which, like many things the religious do, is missing the point. Jews would make it unlawful to do anything that exerted any effort at all on the Sabbath, adding to what was a beautiful command, adding rules and regulations of man rather than what God actually said. I feel that we do this today in so many different ways. And we start to add to what God had to say. We add our religion to what God says so we can be justified for either judging others who don't meet our standard of morality, at least intellectually, or we use it as an opportunity like a scribe or a Pharisee to justify ourselves through our effort rather than God's grace. If you miss everything else I say, you need to understand you are only justified by what God has done, not by what you can do for him. And the religious want to justify themselves based on their effort. They want to work their way to him when he already worked his way to us. Verse 10. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. 
It's just like the religious to miss the miracle because they're focused on the letter of the law, right? And the Sabbath was created as a celebration for all the Lord had done. It was not meant to be a lazy day where you couldn't do anything, but it is a day where you didn't do anything you had to do. Do you see the difference? Sabbath is not a lazy day where you couldn't do anything, but it is a day where you didn't do anything you had to do. And I know for me, living in the Silicon Valley, as most of you do, it is hard to rest, isn't it? You guys can talk back. It is hard to slow down. It is hard to not do all the things that I feel like I have to do. But I'll tell you what, the Sabbath is literally the most sustaining command that I've ever experienced. Here's what I mean. Life is crazy. Things need to get done. Effectiveness is an idol in the Bay Area, isn't it? But the Sabbath recalculates. It, put things, it puts things into perspective like nothing else can because we are effectively saying, catch this, that God can do more in six days using us than we can get done in seven days in our own strength. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? The Sabbath is a physical representation of our trust in God. Let me say it simply. You don't rest, you don't trust. If you don't rest, you do not trust. So the Jewish leader tells the invalid who who can now walk, the Lord forbids you to do this on the Sabbath. Let Let me just say this. If you refuse to rest, if you refuse to slow down, If you refuse the Sabbath, God will make you take the Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? He will eventually make you rest, even if you don't want to. So this Jewish leader tells the invalid who can now walk, the law forbids you. Here's the thing. Forbids? That that word raises my blood pressure. Anybody? Forbids. It is a powerful word. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, I want to do whatever is forbidden. Just me? Wow, I'm on an island. That's fine. Because that's my nature. And yet, the commands of God were put in effect not to spoil our fun, but to give us life. To give us life abundantly. Yet this Jewish leader had missed the point. He had made it about the law, not the lawgiver. Have you ever been there? He wanted to be the lawgiver himself by adding to the expectation of what the Sabbath was and what it does. Verse 11, but he, the invalid, replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Not only were they missing the miracle, church, but they were missing the work of God in the miracle because they were too focused on their expectation of perfection. That's what religious people do. They expect you to be perfect even when they're not perfect perfect and our faith is not built on us being perfect it's built on us pursuing the perfect one okay so here's my point as we're talking about this text if you think this story is about a healing you've missed what God is teaching here's why Jesus could have healed this invalid the day before Jesus could have healed this invalid this paralyzed man any day during the week but when did he do it the Sabbath. Why? Why would he heal him on the Sabbath? 
to show the religious that they had missed it. To show them about their false religion that does not satisfy or justify. To make known that relationship with God is not about doing everything right and not, 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 not doing the stuff wrong, but it's about an intimacy and love for God himself. That's what our faith is built on. That's why we trust Jesus. So look at this text. It says right here, but he replied, verse 11, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So what does this former paralyzed man do? He sells out Jesus, doesn't he? Hey, you're not supposed to do that. So what does he do? He blames someone else. Do we ever do this? See, this has happened since the Garden of Eden, church. In fact, turn with me, if you don't mind, it'll be up here as well, but it's the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, third chapter in. We see the fall. God talks to Adam and he says, don't eat from that tree. And then what happens? Even Adam, eat from that tree. And everything is now changed because sin has entered into the world. And here's what it says. Here's the after, this is the remnants of what has happened. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where art thou? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God, said, who told you that you were naked? I love when God asks a question because you already know he knows the answer, right? But he says, he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? You ever do that if you're a parent? You ever say that to your kids? You know the answer, but you're going to ask them the question anyway? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Do you see what's wrong with this conversation? Not only does Adam sell out Eve, church, but he blames God for the relationship with her. Wow. Now, I don't have time to walk through the passivity of men, but this is a real issue, guys. And I don't think we should be dictators. I think, especially if you're going to be married or you are married, your call is to serve your bride. But God calls men to lead, and leadership is hard. And ever since the fall, men have been acting more like Homer Simpson than Jesus. But God is intervening to help men be spiritual men ever since this. All right, John chapter 5, verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow, I love that word, fellow, who told you to pick up and walk? Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I mean, we're all looking for Jesus, right? And yet this man didn't even know who it was who healed him. The conversation wasn't, hey, by the way, you just healed me, who are you? And this text is weird because Jesus performs a miracle and doesn't seem to take credit for it, at least at first. Why? Have you ever experienced something in your life that maybe at the time you didn't see God's fingerprints all over it, but then when you looked back, you saw that it was God the whole time? That's what this man has experienced. There's this term, I've used it before, coincidences are when God stays anonymous, and people will say that, 
Einstein said this, he didn't because it, it was way before him, and I don't really know who said it, but there's some truth to that. Coincidences are when God stays anonymous. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple. So now he comes back to him, and he found him at the temple, and he said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning. Woo-wee. Or something worse may happen to you. Okay, out of context, this sounds like fighting words, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like a threat, doesn't it? And here comes Jesus. This man that this invalid had talked with, this man who this invalid had seen, but he didn't see anything special about him. He didn't have a halo over his head. He just was in the crowd, but Jesus comes back and has some specific words for this man that I wonder if they ring true for you and I today. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Sounds like a threat, but it's not. As much as this could sound like a threat, it is a legitimate, caring warning. Sin has consequence. Sin has consequence in an eternal sense. And I say this before, said it last week, that's probably, you know, it's probably what's happening. We're going to talk about sin, so we're going to keep the church small. All right? That's just what's going to happen. But in an eternal sense, sin separates us from God if we allow sin to be our identity rather than Jesus. If Jesus is not our identity, if we get our identity from things that are not Christ. We have a heart condition of sin, and we have an eternal separation from God. But in a practical sense, when we make choices that conflict with God's best for us, if you're taking notes, I recommend you write that down, God's best for us, we incur the consequence of it, church. You know this is true, and maybe it's not immediately, but eventually, eventually, And here's kind of some sobering sad news in this text. There's nothing in this exchange that lends itself to this invalid now being a follower of Jesus. You guys see that? Usually when someone gets healed, they then have their sins forgiven. But that doesn't seem to happen here. And if that is the case, this is a much sadder ending than most would realize when they read this. We'll see this in the last verse specifically. People see God and those who pursue Jesus as cosmic killjoys. They see them as Jesus freaks and holier-than-thou people. But can we just get real? If we know someone is going to suffer by drinking poison or doing something that harms them, wouldn't pointing people to God's commands not be a threat but be a caring warning? I'm not saying you just walk up to every single person that you don't know and start to tell them commands of God because you think they're doing it wrong. But if you know someone's going in a direction that's opposite of God's best for them, is it wrong to encourage them? I think we're too afraid to offend people sometimes with truth. And the irony is sometimes when we're really ready to correct somebody, we don't do it with grace And so it's not even the words that we're saying, it's the way that we say it that offends people. I want my children to know Jesus, church. I think if you know me at all, you know that I have these four beautiful children. I love all four of them. I want them 
to know Christ. I want them to pursue Jesus. I want them to have a deep-seated love for Christ. That is my dream for my family. And yet I know that sometimes God uses poor choices to allow for them to realize their need for God. That was true of me. Possibly it was true of you. And God will constantly allow us to skin our knees so we don't get dead. But when we fail, and let's just be real, okay? If we can't be real in a church building, where are we going to be real? We fail a lot. But the goal is not to comb over it or even attempt to hide it, but to own up to it. First before God and repent. And then those that we've sinned against or even those that we influence that are following our example. If we know we've made a mistake, we ought to own up to it to them so they don't go in the same direction we were going. Here's why I say that, because I think I'm a good dad. I don't know, it's kind of weird to say in front of people. I think I'm a good dad, thank you. I think I'm a good dad. I love my kids. I'd lay down my life for my children. I think about them and pray for them all the time. But here's the thing, I don't think I'm a good dad because I put a roof over their head or feed them. I think I'm a good dad because I know that I miss the mark often. And I get the opportunity to use that as a real talk moment for my kids. I've apologized to them more times than I'd like to admit to you about a reaction that I had out of anger or a thing I shouldn't have said, or attention I didn't give them. But I love them. And I want them to know that the only one who is perfect is Jesus himself, and it requires faith to repent. It requires faith to truly apologize and to stop doing that thing that I'm sorry about. See, God doesn't expect you to be sinless. You guys know that, right? Like, he's not expecting you to be perfect, because if he was, you'd never get there. He's not expecting you to be sinless, but in your sanctification process, in your spiritual growth process, he expects you to learn from your mistakes and repent of your sins and to stop doing what you once did. You can't tell me that you've really repented if you keep doing the exact same sins you've done for years. So last week I had shared a little bit about going to Denver to go speak, and I got to take my bride Erin with me, and we flew out there. And what I didn't tell you about, which is one of those things where uh, it's kind of confession time, <sighs> right before we left, uh, all four of my kids knew that we were going to be in Denver for about three days. And right as the kids were getting ready for school, we were going to drop them off at school and then head to the airport. Uh, we were dropping them off, or we were getting them ready for school, and Reagan, my oldest, my 11-year-old, who I adore, Reagan was just being a little fussy. You can enter in what you think I mean by that. And she was being a little bit fussy, and, and she was kind of arguing and yelling at one of her sisters, and I, right before we are going to take them to school, I just told Reagan, I, I couldn't put up with it anymore. I was like, Reagan, go stand on the porch outside. And she got mad at me. Anyone ever experience this? And... <laughs> Go stand on the porch outside. So we got everyone else ready, and then finally we go out there, and, and all the, the girls, and they had all said goodbye to mom because they knew that we were going to be gone for three days. So we all get in the truck. 
we're driving to school, and as we're driving to school, I, I park and I get out of the truck to give hugs to all three of my girls because I knew I wasn't going to see them for a few days. And Evie walks up to me and she goes, I love you, Daddy. And she gives me a hug. And then Lorelai walks up to me, Ah, oh, Daddy, I love you. And she gives me a hug. I don't even know what accent that is. I apologize. <laughs> and then Reagan looks at me. She does this. She walks right past me. Now, this has never happened to me. My kids are crazy affectionate with me. Reagan and I, like, we have this relationship, and she walks right past And I said something that I shouldn't have said, but I'm going to confess it to you, and all of you care now. You're all listening. All right, you ready? I said, don't ever say this. I said, what if the plane crashes, Reagan? <sighs> Might as well have been playing a guitar. I shouldn't have said it, but I did. All right, so confession time. And she looks at me, and she goes, that would be great. <laughs> she walked to school. <sighs> Guys, I've never experienced this before. Never. And maybe some of you are like, that's like a Tuesday. Cool. But like, <laughs> I've, never, I've never experienced this from my kids. And, and honestly, like, I started to cry. I get back in the truck. I'm thinking about it. Like, I, I get home. I tell Erin, and she's like, oh, yeah, she does that all the time. I'm like, she's never done it to me. <laughs> so we get on the flight, and we fly. And by the time we get to Denver, I'm over it, you know, or at least I'm not thinking about it. And then the other day, uh, we're at home. We've gotten back from Denver. Reagan's acting a little weird with me, but we're watching the Warrior game. Woo -woo! And no one comes in the living room while I'm watching the game because they don't like to be startled by my yelling, yeah, LeBron, you suck. Anyway, and so, um, and, and at the end of the game, it's over, and we're just watching um, Kevin Durant talk and everything, and so we're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, Reagan comes in. She's looking a little weird, and she comes up to me, and she sits literally, like, in my armpit, and she starts to cry. And I'm like, baby, what's wrong? She's like, Dad, I'm so sorry about what I said before you guys left for Denver. I prayed so much. I, I wanted to make sure that you were okay, and I'm so sorry that I said that. I did not mean it. I love you so much. She's crying, and now I'm crying, and I'm, I'm like, baby, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Now, here's the thing with Reagan. Reagan struggles with the spirit of repentance. Reagan struggles to say she's sorry. I think she gets it from her mom. I, sa I said that in first service with her in here, too. She struggles to say she's sorry. There's always kind of this pride in my oldest daughter, like, no, I didn't make a mistake. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. And, and this is the back and forth. But, but in that moment, I saw, I saw the spirit of being sorry, the spirit of, I will not say that again. I will not do that again. Too many of us, when we sin against God, we think it's not that big a deal. We don't, we don't really think it matters. We just think it's an oops. We go, well, Jesus died for that. Yeah, you're right. He hung on a cross because of your sin. So why would you keep sinning against him when you know you shouldn't? And too many of us, when we repent, we're not really sorry. We're just going to keep doing it. But when 
when I got to see a repentive heart, when I got to see a disposition of repentance in my daughter to me, it reminded me that God's doing a work in her. I want to remind you that you have a heavenly father. No matter what your earthly dad's been like, you have a heavenly father who loves you and is approachable and wants you to come to him and not just go, sorry, dad, no big deal but actually come to him with a repentive heart because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 15. The man, the former paralyzed man, went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's what I meant when this man was selling out Jesus. Jesus performs a miracle, and rather than give praise to Jesus, rather than follow him in submission, he's afraid of the teachers of the law. He's afraid of the false religion because he is afraid of a false god that is a cosmic killjoy who is a false representation of the god that we know. See, the god that he understood and was afraid of was a God that he thought was just looking for an opportunity for him to mess up so that that fake God could throw a lightning bolt at him. That's not God. That's a weak version of Thor. And Thor's awesome, but Jesus is better. Do you hear me? And I don't mean to be funny, but I think too many of us start to think that God will just give us what we deserve, and I'm praising him that he doesn't. Because of Jesus. See, God is not punitive. God is grace personified in Jesus. Punitive would be you do something wrong and then you get something wrong done back to you. But God gave us grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't give you what you deserve in Jesus. He actually gives you what you don't deserve in Jesus, which is grace. And so this morning... As, as we have spent time in God's word, as we are going to have the opportunity to worship, as we are going to have the opportunity to give of our offerings, if we came prepared to give, I want you to know that if you give more, it doesn't mean God gives you more grace. He gave you his son, and that's enough. He wants us to be worshipers of him, not because he has insecurities, but because he is worthy of our praise. He wants us to actually listen to what he has to say in this because he wants the very best for us. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's a faithful father who is forgiving when we will come to him. And so, worship team, you guys come on up. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to have the opportunity to worship God in spirit and in truth, and I'm going to pass the bags in just a moment. We're going to receive our offering. If you came prepared to give, praise God. If you didn't come prepared to give, praise God. This is not an opportunity for you to feel guilty. This is not an opportunity for you to feel like you're getting something extra from God by doing it. This is an act of worship. And if you came prepared to worship, we'd encourage you to drop something in the offering. If it's, if it's an offering of money, if it's the card that you filled out just saying that you were here and maybe you have a prayer request, you can drop that in the bag as it goes by. But I want to encourage you that this is an opportunity to worship God. This is an opportunity to reflect on what God has done in your life. And so here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to pass the bags 
And then after the bags are passed, I'm going to ask Daniel Delwood to go stand in that corner. I didn't ask him, but tough. I'm going to ask Daniel to go stand over there. I'm going to go stand in this corner. And if God has said something to you, if he's challenged you in some way, if you need prayer from someone, come to one of us and just have the opportunity to pray with somebody, to encourage you and to, to pray on your behalf to God. And so let me pray. We'll pass the bags and we'll start to worship in song. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to engage with you. Thank you that you are doing a work in our midst. Lord, I pray that as we have heard your word preached today, God, I pray that it would fall on hearts that not only heard it, but are willing to put it into action. God, you are beautiful, and you are faithful, and you are forgiving, and we are so grateful to a God that doesn't look at us at our worst and say they're not worthy, but looks at us at our worst and says, come, come follow me. Lord, would you take this offering and would you use it for the glory of your name? Would you make many disciples through the, the willingness that people have to be generous unto your name, God? We thank you for what you're going to accomplish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.